Welcome to this podcast by the National Institutes of Economic and Social Research, NISA. My name is Arne Hanscher, a principal economist at NISA, and this week I'm at Washington University in St. Louis. I came here to attend a conference on the next decade in finance, which gives me a great chance to talk to senior policymakers and practitioners about risks and opportunities in the global economy, topics that really keep us quite busy at the Institute. I'm now joined by uh, Bart van Ark, who is the Executive Vice President and uh, Global Chief Economist of the Conference Board, a global business research think tank with uh, pretty much a global reach. But uh, you're also a NISA alumni, yeah. uh, basically. Um, one issue that uh, the, uh, the National Institute has been working on for a long time is uh, the so-called productivity puzzle in the UK. And you may remember discussions Absolutely. from your yeah. time at the Institute. Um, it's not just an issue in the UK, but it's uh, pretty much a topic that occupies people in uh, most other advanced economies as well. A big question now to policymakers is uh, how to accelerate productivity growth going forward. What would be your answer? Yeah, it's actually really interesting. You start with the, the work that the National Institute was, has been doing this for, for many, many decades. And indeed, when I worked on that uh, at NISER in, in the late 80s, this was a bit of a UK problem. And a lot of the discussion was about the need for better vocational training, that the general education system wasn't quite preparing people well for you know, a productive job and a lot of lessons being learned from Europe. And, and now here we are, what is it, uh, 30, 35 years down the road, it's a long time. And the problem seems to have widened. Uh, the problem in the UK, as you say, is still absolutely there. Uh, the productivity numbers have been quite weak. Uh, productivity has been catching up for quite a while with the rest of Europe, and then it mm. sort of started to slow down again. But a lot of the things that we were talking about at that time in the UK are now equally relevant for Europe. Okay. Uh, it, it does come back to... Um, so no lessons learned, basically. Well, maybe, you know, a lot has changed, of course, in, in that period of time. And one thing that changed big ways is, of course, te technology and the way that the digital economy, first uh, what I call the old digital economy, the rise of the PC and the beginning of e-commerce and the internet, which was in the 1990s, early 2000s, but then more late, more recently, the new digital economy, which is the you know the rise of mobile and internet everywhere uh, and at every time, uh, and then of course you know data analytics and robotics and AI. So so the type of technology has changed, and therefore the requirements on transforming our education and training system uh, have changed. And I think a lot of European countries, were, which may have been good in the old system, for example, Germany was always a great example, so was France, may perhaps have a hard time to adjust. Mm -hmm. so, so I would say, you know, when it comes to the productivity issue, uh, we, we really struggle to prepare workers for this kind of new environment. Mm -hmm. So we have these young kids coming out of school that actually are probably more and better able to deal with the technology than anyone else, but then to apply that technology in a business environment is something that we're not very well prepared for. We're not very good in setting up internships and apprenticeships and a whole new thinking about vocational training and education mm -hmm. and those things. So it's really about the practice of, uh, well, then using these technological skills 
Yeah. The workplace. I, yeah, I think what, what we see, uh, and I'm now referring back to the work that I'm doing at the conference board where mm -hmm. I work a lot more with companies to, to understand why it is so hard to implement this technology. Mm -hmm. And it really comes down to the way the workforce is is adjusting to it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, organizations are set up as departments and these departments quite often are silos and mm -hmm. they had their own data, they had their own cultures. Now in this new world where, you know, you need to, you know, data is now something you own as an entire company. They're not like, you know, s silos within an organization. Mm -hmm. For that you need to collaborate, you need to be creative, you need to be very agile to very quickly react to the new data that are coming in. Okay. And that is something that you don't, you know, you, 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 you learn some of the basics for that in school, uh, but in order to apply it in an organization is a whole different, in a whole different game. Some of that is technology, some of that is simply social skills. Collaboration, I mentioned, but creativity, for example, conflict handling and all those kind of things are becoming much more important competencies for workers these days. Okay, great. Uh, thanks a lot. I'm now talking to Javier Perez, uh, who is director of the International Economics and Euro Area Department at the, the Bank of Spain, the uh, Spanish Central Bank. Javier, one of the uh, issues that uh, we think about quite a bit at NISA is risks to global growth forecasts. So I was going to ask you, what are the risks to global growth? Yeah, when you think of, of uh, the, the main risks to global, from a very global perspective, Certainly, there is one which is uh, like first order, which is like uh, this uh, protectionist uh, the, uh, war. I mean, like a trade, trade war between the U.S. and and uh, and, uh, and and China. So there, because it has like two dimensions. One dimension is like the uh, it distorts the flow of, of goods that go from one country to another. So this is uh, global because we are quite uh, interconnected uh, overall. And second because uh, it creates a lot of uncertainty on everybody else. So we don't know whether tomorrow there will be another uh, hike in, in, in tariffs or whatever, or whether tomorrow there will be another uh, open front uh, between the US and, 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 and the EU. So this is kind of a, a, a major uh, uh, like an, an engine of uncertainty for, for global growth nowadays. Yet in particular for the area, this, this uh, let's say disruption of, of, of trade flows is, is, is very important. Why? It's, it's more important than the, than in the average because the euro area is, is a more much more open economy. Mm -hmm. So basically, what uh, you trade, I mean, what we trade with uh, between uh, what we sell by export, what we buy by with imports, weights much more in our uh, say wealth than in, in, in any other area like the US or, or China. So this is the first thing. Okay. Uh, and, and the second thing is that the, the the there are some factors which are more like a, a more focus on, on, on in particular on, on how on, on Europe mm -hmm. and, and of course I mean linked to this uh, like a more global uh, trade wars there are other uh, trends that affect also how, how countries are, are now trading in, in, in the world and in particular for the Euro area uh, like uh, we have like a major trading partners which are affected by additional uh, uh, let's say shocks or perturbation and, and mm -hmm. one clear uh, case is the UK because of course I mean, we have the, the, the Brexit thing. Mm -hmm. We don't know whether this thing is, um, how it's going to be solved. I mean, with the, the exit of the UK from the, from the, from the EU will be like a, a very disruptive or it will be very smooth or, or whatever. Yeah. And this is having an impact now uh, already in, mm -hmm. in, in, the, in, in the trade flows. You know, this, is, this is like one thing that also comes from the, from the euro perspective, let's say from the, from the foreign uh, uh, trade uh, part. Mm -hmm. And also because uh, there are some additional uh, sources of, of, of uh, tension in, in, the, in, in key trading partners like Turkey, for example, for the Euro, this is very, very important. 
So for the euro area, basically, the, the, this global uh, uh, turmoil in, in trade is particularly important. But there are also some specific uh, issues that are more like uh, uh, domestic uh, to the euro area. And one yeah. thing is like, uh, uh, I mean, all this, all this uh, let's call it the difficulties in, in, in Italy, let's say the, the, the policy uncertainty surrounding uh, many decisions that, of course, I mean, this affects the, the, the uh, other countries. Okay. You've seen also some di disruption in, in France uh, in, with some social unrest. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and of course, I mean, all this, let's call more like a geopolitical uh, uh, um, yeah. uh, factors also affect the domestic economy. So when you think, uh, when you look at the euro area from uh, like uh, uh, where we were expecting the euro area to be like one year ago, mm -hmm. we see that now things are, are, are worse than what we expected uh, one year ago, okay. mainly because of, let's say, trade was uh, worse mm -hmm. because of all the, the factors I was mentioning before, but also because uh, we had some specific uh, uh, elements that are more related to, to specific things in the, in, the, in, in the area that have to do with uh, more, more let's say, with the, with the frontier between politics and economics. Okay. Yeah. So it is really a range of, uh, of different risks that, uh, that are there. Um, what do you think uh, fiscal policy and or monetary policy can do to partly offset these risks, to mitigate some of these risks? And is there scope for policy to mitigate these risks. Yeah. On that, I would say, of course, I mean, given the, the, the forces that are that, that are affecting the, 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 these risks, as I was mentioning before, some mainly related to, to tariffs, uh, trade wars, uh, let's say some structural changes, mm -hmm. that, which will, uh, economists call more like a supply shocks. Yeah. Of course, I mean, traditional policies like fiscal and monetary policies are more geared towards uh, when it comes to, to managing the say, demand in the short run. They are not uh, related to, to to demand shocks. Okay. So in that sense, I mean, of course, I mean, these policies can do something in, in a, for a certain period of time, but the the issues that we are uh, witnessing now are, are a bit more more uh, are deeper. Now, of course, I mean, if tomorrow uh, we really have a, a very bad shock, a very bad accident because of this, because the the, the, the process of the the UK exiting the EU is more disordered than the, what we were expecting, or because the, there is an escalation in the trade in the trade war, mm -hmm. then of course there you have to deploy all the all the tools that you have, being them uh, demand or or, or whatever. Yeah. You know? So from that perspective, uh, first, I mean, of course, uh, when you look at monetary policy, monetary policy is already quite loose in the in the euro area. But that said, given that uh, that uh, we're really now more more uh, on the unconventional monetary policy side, let's say there's still a lot to be to be deployed. Mm -hmm. So of course, I mean we are not uh, we won't have the same gains that we had in, in 2011, 2012. But of course, I mean there is a lot uh, still to be to be done. So there. Are, so it's different this time, but it, it might there is still scope for, for yeah, exactly. policy to react. Of course, it's more in, in the margin, the types, it's more like uh, deploying uh, even more, I mean, all this unconventional uh, monetary policy mm -hmm. stuff, because of course, I mean, all the, the, the conventional one, we are like uh, now the, at this uh, effective uh, lower bound of yeah. interest rates. So from that, on that point of view, monetary policy can still do a, a lot of things. But of course, basically monetary policy has been doing a lot over the past uh, years. Mm -hmm. So there is scope for other policies to do something, uh, something else. And in the particular case of the of the euro area, where you have like a, this common monetary policy, but a, a country by country fiscal policy, let's say the space to do additional uh, stimulus is kind of uh, distributed across countries in in a different way. For mm -hmm. example, you have countries like uh, Germany, where the public finances are in a more sounder uh, situation. Yeah. So they could eventually, I mean, uh, uh, launch some kind of uh, demand-oriented uh, fiscal policy. Of course, the point is that uh, when you have this this policy, the, the question, the immediate question is, 
how is this going to affect uh, other areas. So you enter into this uh, fiscal spillover uh, stuff, and there the, the discussion in, in the literature is quite uh, mixed, so mm. it's not clear. I mean, even though, of course, we know that, that, that some spillovers there will be there. And other countries that might be the ones uh, needing more like this stimulus might not have what uh, economists call uh, like this fiscal space. Mm -hmm. no? So basically, from an aggregate point of view, so you, you were to have like a, some, some common uh, instrument of fiscal policy that could be, let's say, paramount to what we have in, in, in monetary policy. Mm -hmm. This misallocation of who has the fiscal space and who needs uh, to, to have the, the fiscal policy could be solved because the important thing would be like the like uh, what's going on at the, at the euro area uh, aggregate level. How could that be done? Yeah, the point is that we don't really have the the, the optimal tools to do that now. No? So basically, uh, this is a call to say, okay, let's hope there is not going to be a recession tomorrow because I mean indicators of recession are, are not uh, sending that signal. We're in a deceleration, in an order deceleration. So let's hope that we have a couple of years or more time to build up buffers and to also develop the institutional uh, capacity to have this, uh, let's call it a common fiscal capacity, just to absorb this this, uh, this uh, adverse economic situation mm -hmm. that can hinge on countries in a, in, in a different uh, way. No? Okay. So there is a scope to complete uh, EMU, even though, of course, I mean, there's been a lot of advances. Uh, so the European Monetary Union? Yeah. Exactly, the European mm -hmm. Monetary Union. So that, uh, let's say, monetary policy, uh, now this banking union, even though there are some missing uh, points, like uh, this uh, mm -hmm. common insurance uh, uh, deposit uh, that is not uh, yet uh, in place. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a scope to have this additional uh, institutional uh, arrangements within the, uh, I mean, between the euro area countries that are badly needed, I mean, to, to really have the monetary policy being do, doing uh, its job and, and then uh, have the other policies doing the, the other job. Do you see any upside risks? So is there a chance that uh, growth pros, uh, prospects might be might be better than we currently think? Yeah, this is a good uh, uh, this is a good point. You know, because the the, the, the issue is that uh, when you look at the, at the projections of how let's say all international organizations or even some, some national institutions look at the future, they will assume that this uh, let's say let's call it trade shocks are going to vanish uh, in, in the medium run. So basically, all the scenarios that you see in, in, in the market now assume that this is a, like, a, like a transitory uh, issue, so it would be it go back, no? So basically, what the, the answer to, the, to that question would be, um, let's hope that the baseline scenario uh, really <laughs> happens <laughs> and we don't have downside risks. No? <laughs> okay, thanks. Another area Nissan has recently been looking at is uh, the impact of climate change on the economy. Katrin Saget, the uh, chief of the Work Income and Equity Unit of the International Labour Organization, has done some research on the link between climate change and labour market outcomes. Katrin, could you summarize very briefly some of the main findings uh, of your research in that area? Thank you, Arnaud. The way we look at climate change at the International Labour Organization is basically two ways. First, our mandate is to estimate the impact of job creation, job destruction, of uh, reaching the Paris Agreement, of limiting uh, the increase in global temperature to 1.5 degrees C by the end of this century with respect to a pre-industrial area. And our second mandate is to analyze the policies, social protection, skills development that are needed to make sure that this transition to a green economy is successful. Mm -hmm. Now, surely 
in a transition there will be uh, winners and losers um, if you have to sort of like adjust the economy in order to uh, become more environmentally friendly um, what are sort of like ideas on how to mitigate losses for losers and uh, possibly redistribute some of the uh, gains and losses our estimate shows that by 2030 24 million jobs will be created from achieving the Paris Agreement, mainly uh, in construction and in renewable energy. However, 6 million jobs will be lost at the global level, and this will affect particularly some sectors, but also some countries. So here, the policies that we advocate for at the ILO is first better integration of environmental goals with social policies, and also, uh, for example, social protection policies that also take into account the environment. For example, in Kenya, the, um, where they have small cash transfers to poor households, which can be adapted to the severity of a drought. So that's one way. The second uh, big policy measure is skills development policy, which is seen as the key to make sure that the, the transition leads to more and better job and also uh, well, is a success in terms of ensuring the target, uh, the environmental target. Okay, so is this something that uh, every country should do uh, in some sense, should implement uh, some of these well, policies? Um, or is that something that should uh, focus specifically on certain countries that uh, will be affected more or may have more of an impact on, on climate change? Well, all countries are doing some efforts to achieve um, environmental sustainability. This is very much the spirit of the Paris Agreement. And if you, if you look at uh, a poor country like Guyana in Latin America, they enacted a low energy and they were looking at what would be the requirement in terms of skills, in terms of uh, human resources of uh, this particular low energy. So that means um, how many auditors in energy, how many specialists of the environment uh, would they, they need, and what type of skills would these new specialists uh, need? Mm -hmm. I think you've also looked at the uh, impact of climate change, and in particular, what you call, I think, uh, heat distress on productivity. Mm -hmm. uh, so productivity is obviously a variable that uh, we as macroeconomists look at uh, very closely. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the findings there? So when we talk about heat stress, we talk about a situation where it is too hot to work or too hot to work at regular intensity. So this usually occurs at around, it starts at 24, 26 degrees when people start to slow down. And at 33, 34 degrees, uh, losses in productivity can be as high as 50%. So what we do is we estimate the impact of a 1.5 degree C scenario, so a very um, conservative scenario, uh, which is very unlikely to be met. And we estimate that in 2030, 2.2% of working hours will be lost due to the fact that it's simply too hot to work for workers in agriculture, in construction, who work outdoors, who have uh, a high physical intensity of work. Very interesting. This is unfortunately all we have time for on this occasion.
You'll find more material about the conference on our website, together with other podcasts and blogs and specialist briefings. The address is www.nisa.ac.uk. Goodbye.